It's sweet to be reminded of a song like this because it is one of those hymns that begins with the incarnation of Jesus, goes to the ultimate purpose why Jesus came to the earth uh, to die in the place of sinners who would repent and trust in Jesus, and then uh, finish with our hopes and dreams, uh, being ultimately brought to the Lord as an offering so that we indeed surrender our lives to the Lord. Uh, that is a message that we want to proclaim, uh, whether it's Christmas or Easter or any other Sunday or any other day of the year. This uh, week and the next, we are taking a short detour from our study in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, uh, a book that we have started just a few weeks uh, ago. Last week, uh, we looked at Hannah's song in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, and today we are we're jumping ahead uh, centuries later from the book of Samuel, uh, we're jumping through many books uh, remaining in the Old Testament. We're jumping to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, because this Gospel begins with two songs, just, uh, just as the book of Samuel began with the song of Hannah. And both songs in, in the Gospel of Luke um, are in response to announcements of miraculous births. God is going to bring a great deliverance for his people, just as he planned to do a deliverance in the book of 1 Samuel. He's going to bring a, a greater deliverance, way much greater than what happened in 1 Samuel. And the beginning of this great redemption story starts with a barren woman and a virgin woman. So today we're going to look at the songs that are coming out of the announcements of both of those births. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Zechariah's song, and next week, Lord willing, we are going to be looking at Mary's song. Would you open God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1? Uh, we'll be reading from verse 57 uh, to 79. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you, and you may open uh, the Bible to page, the Pew Bibles, uh, to page number 856. Uh, let's hear God's Word uh, read this morning as we consider uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 56 uh, to 79. Here is God's Word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be, him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah, 
was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he had visited his rede- and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you bow your head with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and bless our hearts as we hear. Father in heaven, we praise you for the way you have worked in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah. We, ha- we thank you for the revelation he gave us through your Holy Spirit of what you planned to do in the birth of John the Baptist and in the birth of Jesus. Father, as we hear this word, as we hear Zechariah's song, would you open our hearts to hear well? Would you enable our eyes to see the glory of your salvation in Jesus Christ? We pray all this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Friends, Luke begins this gospel by telling us about a barren woman, just as we have seen the book of 1 Samuel begin with the story of a barren woman. In Luke's gospel, the barren woman's name was um, the wife of Zechariah, the priest we just read about. And the, the, the wife's name was Elizabeth. The story of this couple begins in, earlier in this chapter in verse 5. But unlike Hannah from 1 Samuel, Elizabeth and Zechariah were both advanced in age, which gave clear evidence that the birth of the child, of a child to this couple, could not be explained in any other way than by being the work of God. Notice how the angel greeted Zechariah. Look at verse 13 earlier, just a few verses before the passage we read. The angel says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, this tells us that Zechariah and his wife had been praying for this child for a long time. But when the answer comes, when he hears the news from the angel that they will have a child, Zechariah the priest, while conducting a worship service in the temple, hears the message from the priest, from from the angel, and his response is disbelief. How can I be sure that you're telling me the truth? How can I be sure that I will know that these things will happen? Perhaps by this time, Zechariah had given all hope. 
It's one of those prayers that you pray for a very long time. And after decades of no answer, after your body is aging, you put the math together, I guess it's not the Lord's will for us to have a child. Perhaps Zechariah and, and Elizabeth had, have given up actually the hope of them having a child. So he responds with, with unbelief, and therefore the angel rebukes him and makes him mute until the son was born and until the day when he's brought to the temple to be circumcised. And when God opened Zechariah's mouth on, on that eighth day after, the, after they were working through figuring out the name, Zechariah responds. The first thing he does is to bless God. And he responds with a song of praise. It was also a prophecy because we were told in verse 67 that the Holy Spirit came upon Zechariah and declared this prophecy. Oh, friends, what a change in this priest from disbelief nine months earlier to being now able through the Holy Spirit to declare such a glorious song as we will see this morning. And what did the Holy Spirit inspire Zechariah to utter? What is Zechariah's song about? Zechariah refers five times in the song to God's salvation or redemption or deliverance. So this song is about God's salvation. Zechariah's song is about God's salvation. And this song about God's salvation has five parts to it. We're going to look at the various facets, the various parts that, that Zechariah includes as he sings about God's salvation. It's my prayer this morning that we would be refreshed in cherishing the birth of Christ as God's salvation. And if you don't know God's salvation, if you have no clue about what God's salvation is, or if you know intellectually about God's salvation, but it has never gripped your heart, I pray that the Holy Spirit will, will work that salvation and apply that salvation to your heart this morning as well. Five parts, five elements, five facets about God's salvation in Zechariah's song. The first one is the announcement of God's salvation. The announcement of God's salvation. Let me just say this. If you like taking notes and you get a, want to get a big overview of all the five points, let me say them to you. The announcement of God's salvation, that's point one. The second, the motivation behind God's salvation. That's point two, the motivation behind God's salvation. Three, the effects on us of God's salvation. The effects on us of God's salvation. Number four, the forerunner of God's salvation. The forerunner of God's salvation. And lastly, the result of God's salvation. The result of God's salvation. Let's uh, look at each of these and see how Zechariah blesses God, praises God for what God has promised to do. The announcement of God's salvation. You would expect that Zechariah's focus after the baby is born is to praise God for the baby that he has now. You would expect that, that all his praise is to just, just to have words that he cannot utter about the baby. After all, they've waited so long that it seemed like Zechariah had lost all hope for a son. But when we look at the song, when we look at the entirety of the song, we realize that Zechariah speaks about his son only in two verses. Only two verses about the son that was born to him. Someone else 
is more important than the son born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Someone else and something else is way more important than merely the birth of John, who will be known in the Bible as John the Baptist. What is more important uh, in, in Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah's life that they are, that, that uh, Zechariah is now praising God and focusing on something else rather than the baby born to him? Notice how God introduced, um, how Zechariah introduced God's actions in bringing about this salvation. Uh, God's salvation is the most important part in the song. And notice how Zechariah or how God inspires Zechariah to speak about this salvation. God visits his people. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. In order for God to bring about salvation or redemption, God is visiting his people. Now, there are several times in the Old Testament where we see this phrase, God visited. For example, the first time it shows up is in the life of Sarah. In Genesis 21, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. If you remember, Sarah had been barren. And this visiting of God referred to enabling a barren woman to have a child, a promised son. In Genesis 50, Joseph said the following to his brothers, I'm about to die but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he soared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Or Exodus 4, 31, when the people of Israel heard that the Lord had visited the, the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This was the announcement that Moses brought to the people of Israel that God has visited them and saw their affliction. In these examples, God visits, God's visit is always a visit to be, bring about a big change. A change from barrenness, in the case of Sarah, to having a child. A change from living in Egypt, uh, like in Genesis 50, to being able to be taken out of it. And then a change from being in affliction to being freed. Being slaves in Egypt and being freed from it. Zechariah uses this language of God visiting his people and he explicitly defines the purpose of the visit as a redemption. When God visits, he redeems. But Zechariah understands that by this time, God is visiting his people in a much greater and glorious way than in the Old Testament. God, this time, is visiting his people by sending his son, the promised descent, descendant of David, the king to whom God promised a, a the king, David, being the, the one to whom God promised a future king that would, that would have a kingdom that will never be taken away. How do we know from this text that God's visitation of his people is by sending his son? The very next phrase describes what it means that God is visiting his people for redemption. God raised a horn of salvation. Look at verse 69 and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now last week, we saw the picture of a horn in Hannah's song. God promised to send, uh, to raise up a horn uh, and anoint his king. But here, who is 
the horn of salvation. We saw in the Old Testament that the image of a horn is used not as, a, as an instrument. It's rather, it's a, it's a symbol of power, of strength. The ox, the, the horn of the ox was a very powerful weapon. Now, who is the horn of salvation? In this passage, it's very clear that it's a human being. For Zechariah says, it's a descendant of David. At the time Zechariah uttered this prophecy, the one ruling over Israel was not a descendant of, of David, it was Herod. So to say that God is raising a horn of salvation in the house of, of David is to announce uh, the raising up, the restoration of what had been broken in the covenant God made with David. In that covenant, God promised that one of David's offsprings will reign on the throne forever and will have a kingdom that will never be taken away. But in the mind of Zechariah, the line of, of the succession, uh, the royal line in, in David's house had been broken and the one reigning was Herod. Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 ended with a prophecy that God will raise up the horn of his anointed. And here Zechariah comes to declare that God is indeed raising up what, what Hannah prophesied earlier, centuries before. A horn of salvation. But it's not in Zechariah's house. It's not through the birth of John. But it's in the house of David. Who is the horn of salvation in the house of David referring to? Oh, friends, it's referring to Jesus. It's referring to Jesus. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus gets this picture or this title for being described as, as a horn of salvation. Where did Zechariah get this picture from? If we don't see it elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, where else do we see this picture? It's in the Old Testament. Two times we see the phrase, horn of my salvation. And it's in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 22, verse 3, and in Psalm 18, verse 2. Both of these places, are, are this, this phrase is used by David when God rescued David from the pursuit of his enemy, Saul. In both places, David used this phrase, who is the horn of my salvation? David used that to refer to God. The only time the phrase horn of salvation or horn of my salvation is used in the Old Testament, it's not referring to people. It's referring to God. And here's Zechariah attributing this title to one of David's descendants who was to be born of Virgin Mary. Dear friends, Jesus is the horn of salvation through whom God will bring about this great redemption. Jesus is visiting his people to redeem them through this horn of salvation, who is Jesus Christ. And in this announcement of salvation, of God's salvation, uh, Zechariah also tells us this news is nothing new. He tells us that God has spoken of this salvation in the past. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah tells us that the news of God's salvation is not new. God has spoken about it in the Old Testament. What did God speak in the Old Testament about, about this? Well, here's one example. This is one of the prophetic hopes in the Old Testament. In Psalm 132, verse 17 and 18, God says the following, There I will make a horn 
to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamb for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God promises that when he will make David's house, which had been cut off from reigning, when he will make that house to sprout again, God will make that sprout to be a horn. What has God promised in the past? That he will raise a horn that will sprout up for David. And the effect of that horn will be the freedom from enemies. That's exactly what Zechariah says in the song. When he mentions the coming of a horn of salvation in the house of David, it means rescue from enemies. Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Friends, the salvation that Zechariah speaks of as soon as he opens his mouth after being muted for nine months because of disbelief, the first thing he, he utters is to bless God and announce the, the salvation that God is bringing to his people. He visits his people by raising up Jesus as a horn of salvation. And this news has been predetermined, pre, uh, pre-spoken of already in the Old Testament. But the second part of the, of the song that, that Zechariah speaks of or mentions is the motivation behind God's salvation. We've seen the announcement of God's salvation. Now the motivation. Why is God acting this way? Why is God doing this? Why is God raising up a horn of salvation? Well, consider in verses 72 and 73 the two reasons mentioned here. In verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Friends, God visits His people to bring them His salvation, not because they deserved it. And this is an important part. It's not because they are worthy of God's salvation. It's not because they're doing more good things and bad things that they will receive God's salvation. It's not because God knows ahead of time who will choose God. No. Not even because of the obedience to God's laws. After all, Luke describes Elizabeth and Zechariah as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. If anyone had reasons to say, oh, the Lord is merciful because we've lived a godly life, it would be Zechariah. But that's not what he says. Even for such people, God's salvation comes because of God's mercy. To show God's mercy. Even to such people, God's salvation comes as an unmerited favor. This first motivation we see here for God's salvation is the mercy of God. Friends, I wonder if somehow, in subtle ways in your own heart, uh, you think that God's salvation is somehow based on how good you are. Oh, God owes it to you to save you. Oh, I'm such a good person. I, I think I'm going to be fine. I think I'm okay with God. I think I'm okay with the Creator. Don't let such thoughts grow roots in your mind or heart. God's salvation comes to us entirely because of God's mercy. But there's a second reason here. It's not only because of God's mercy, not only to show the mercy, but we are told to show the covenant. Zechariah mentions as a second motivation the covenant he made with Abraham. In other words, and by the way, when God made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 
It was God's initiative to do that. It was not Abraham who took the initiative. God, should we make a deal here? Oh, no, it was God taking the initiative to pledge to Abraham this covenant. In other words, the foundation of why God brings his salvation to us is God's word. God promised to do it. God said he would do it. Friends, God's salvation in our lives is founded upon the mercy of God and upon the word of God. That's why. That's the motivation behind God's salvation. What a gratitude this, is, this should cause us when we realize that God's salvation is brought to us not because of anything we have done, but entirely because of God. Zechariah continues his song by developing a third point or moving on to a third point. The effects of God's salvation. The effects of God's salvation. Or the effects on us specifically. You see, we see this in verses 74 and 75. What are the effects of God's salvation? Earlier in verse 71, Zechariah spoke about freedom from enemies. But notice what that freedom from enemies brings us or causes in us. Notice the intended effect of this new freedom. Look at verse 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, all our days. Friends, this is a purpose for which God is freeing his people. So they can serve God. It's not that so they can be independent from God. It's not so that they can do anything they want. That's not the kind of freedom. That's not the kind of purpose that God has behind our freedom. The purpose why God frees his people from their enemies is so they can serve the Lord. How should they serve the Lord? Look at four ways or four characteristics of how to serve the Lord. Without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, and continually. All the days of our lives. Friends, if these are the effects that God's salvation has on his people, it's clear that we should not think of God's salvation as merely as a, a ticket to heaven or an insurance out of hell. It's not even just an act of mere freedom from oppression. As one pastor said, the, God's aim in raising a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people. It is rather to create a holy and righteous people who will live no longer in fear because they now trust him. This means that in order to, for God to have a people who serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, and continually, it means that freedom from our enemies involves taking away all that which causes us to be unholy and unrighteous. What does it mean to serve God without fear? Let me put two verses before you elsewhere in the Bible, that seems to suggest the opposite. For instance, David says in Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said the following, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, are these verses contradicting themselves here? Is the Bible contradicting itself here? No, it's not. And here's why. <coughs> 
Because in the Bible, the word for fear has multiple meanings and is used for bringing about even opposite effects. In calling us to serve the Lord with fear, in Psalm 2 or Philippians 2, we're called to serve the Lord with, both with awe, but also with a soberness. That this is not a trivial thing. We should not treat the Lord or our salvation as a superficial, if it can happen, it should, it should happen. A superficial experience. No, we should, we should fear the Lord. We should, we should serve the Lord with, with sobriety, with a joyful fear, with awe. But Zechariah's experience here, the way Zechariah uses the word fear, serving the Lord without fear has an entirely different use. Zechariah has spoken about enemies. Enemies who have kept God's people from serving the Lord fearlessly. Think of the Egyptians, how they kept God's people away from serving the Lord. Freedom the freedom that God wants to bring is so that now we can serve Him safely without any of the enemies encroaching upon us or keeping us away from serving the Lord. It's a kind of f- without fear, which means safe. Here, Zechariah is declaring that the Lord is freeing us from our enemies so that indeed there's no more stumbling blocks that keep us away from serving the Lord. Friends, those who come to the Lord know and experience His salvation, and they begin serving the Lord with an inner peace and an inner joy. There's no more that fear that, that, that sin brings upon us, the fear of, of being separated from God. There's now a, a unity, there's now a peace that comes upon our souls when we experience God's salvation. John Calvin said, before men can truly worship God, they must obtain peace of conscience. But those who come to know the Lord and experience His salvation begin to experience other effects as well. A desire for holiness, a desire for righteousness, and a perseverance to the end of their days. These are the effects of God's salvation in our lives. These effects are not the condition of our salvation. We're not saved based on the condition of these experiences. We're saved because of God's mercy, on God's mercy alone. But they are effects. They are effects in our lives once that salvation has taken up root in our lives. And if God's salvation has truly taken place in us, these fruits will become evident. The New Testament, the book of Titus, says something similar in Titus 2, 11-14. For the grace of God, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, do you see what are the intended effects God desires to see in His people after He saves them? Holiness, righteousness, perseverance, peace. 
are fruits in any person who has truly been saved by God. This is why God frees us from our enemies. So then the question is, what are the enemies God saves us from? They're not mere people. The enemies from which God saves us are sin and the devil. They keep people in bondage so that we would not serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness. Friends, if you are a Christian, do you see these intended effects of salvation as desires in your life? Or do you see them as mere optional features? I pray that you would see them as God's intended effects of the salvation He brings to His people. If you're experiencing difficulty in serving the Lord uh, without fear, if you're experiencing challenges in serving the Lord in holiness and righteousness, or in doing so continuously, please speak to another member in our congregation, in this church, about, about that struggle. And come, or come and talk to me or any of the pastors here. We want to be a community that encourages and helps one another to cultivate and pursue these effects because this is what the gospel of Jesus produces in us when we believe it. Part of what it means to be a member of our church is that we commit to one another, to help one another, and in living out God's intended effects uh, of the salvation that He brings us. If you're not a member of, of any church, I encourage you to consider committing yourself to a congregation that helps you grow in these salvation effects in your lives. And if you're not a Christian, well, friends, I encourage you to, to ask God to save you. These effects you cannot pursue on your own. These effects you cannot do in your flesh. Not for long. Not continually. Only once we're saved, only when we experience the grace of God, of, of regenerating our hearts, can these effects begin growing in us. A fourth part of, of God's salvation that Zechariah speaks of is the forerunner of God's salvation. The forerunner of God's salvation. Finally, Zechariah comes to speak about the baby who was born to him. And here's what he says. In verse 76, Zechariah turns his attention to the ministry of, of the son that was born to him. Look to verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. But John the Baptist was sent as a, a forerunner to announce to the people of God the coming of salvation, of God's salvation. But that salvation was not an economic rescue. It's not like the U.S. government trying to save the, the U.S. economy by, by giving out that, that great program a few years ago uh, and in growing more debt through the treasury. It's not economic rescue. It's not even political or military rescue. The most crucial part that God's salvation had to deal with and this was the part that was hard for the Jewish people to understand because they were longing for, for the Romans to be kicked out and beaten down. The more hardest part for the, for the people of Israel at that time was to realize that God's salvation is first and foremost about our sin. It's about the forgiveness of our sins. This is what we need to be saved from most of all, our sins. We need freedom from the guilt that our sins incure. We need freedom from the condemnation that our sins brings against us. We need forgiveness. The forgiveness 
of our sins. When Zechariah described the ministry of John, of John the Baptist, we see a very clear picture of what is the primary enemy of all of us. It's our sin. That's why God's salvation is about the forgiveness of our sin. When I ask other Christians who tell me they are Christians how they became saved, I often ask them to tell me how they became aware that they are sinners in need of God's redemption. It's not to say, oh, I got saved when I was five or six. I rose my hand or I walked down the aisle. But I don't remember much about it or much beyond that. Friends, it's, it's more specific to ask, how did you become aware of your sins and of your need of redemption? Through Jesus. In verse 78, Zechariah brings up again the mercy of God. The forgiveness of our sins is entirely rooted in the mercy of God, not in what we have done. Uh, look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Friend, our experience of God's salvation would be begins with this realization that none of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. That God doesn't owe us anything. The only thing God owes us, if He were to act on what we deserved, the only thing God owes us is torment in hell. But God's salvation in the forgiveness of our sins is entirely because of the tender mercies of our God. Friends, is there some way in which you believe that God owes you to forgive you to restore you. Give up that th those kind of thoughts. God's forgiveness is entirely because of His mercy. But then the result, the final point of this song that Zechariah utters in praise is the result of God's salvation. Remember how Zechariah started the song in verse 1? I mean, in, I'm sorry, in the first verse here in, in verse 68. He referred to Jesus as the horn of salvation. Now at the end of the song, Zechariah describes Jesus with another picture. This time, Jesus is described in a subtle way as the sunrise. As the sunrise. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Who is it? Who is this sunrise that's visiting from on high? It's Jesus. In verse 68, at the beginning of the song, we saw that God is visiting His people by sending His Son as a horn of salvation in the house of David. Now, the one visiting from on high is described as the sunrise. The picture of Jesus as the horn of salvation pointed to strength, power, and triumph. And the same theme is picked up in this picture as the sunrise. Think about it. Can anyone put a stop to a sunrise. Humanly speaking, it's impossible to oppose the, the rising up of the sun. You just can't. There, there's no category. But this picture of the birth of Jesus as a sunrise also shows that in the coming of Christ, the darkness begins to disappear. The darkness cannot oppose the light when the sunrise is coming up. Friends, this is the result of God's salvation. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When God's salvation comes through Jesus, 
the darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness caused by our own rebellion, the darkness caused by our own ignorance, the, the, the darkness caused by our own rejection of God begins to disappear. Oh, friends, notice that Jesus gives light not only to those who sit in darkness, but also to those who sit in the shadow of death. The light of Christ. The light of the sunrise, who is Jesus. Only that kind of light can put a stop to death. Even a physical sunrise cannot stop people from dying. But only the sunrise of Jesus Christ is able to bring light to those who are in the shadow of death. The coming of Christ not only brings light to dispel the darkness and the fear of death, but it's a light that guides our feet into the way of peace. Friends, Jesus came into the world, the divine Son of God, and lived the perfect life in, light, in, the, in the sight of God, yet He was condemned. And He was crucified on a cross as a, as a penalty for the sins of all those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ. On the third day, God rose Jesus from the dead and now gives life and light and peace to all those who would turn to Him, to all those who would believe in Him. Friend, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, I encourage you to do so today. As God, ask God to save you. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to encourage you to talk to someone in this church. The light of Christ is the only one that can turn away the darkness that can turn away the power of death, that can turn away the, the animosity, the animosity that first exists, exists between us and God, and then the animosity that exists between us and each other. The light of Christ brings peace. Are you following Christ into a way of peace? Peace with God and peace with one another? Consider the song that Zechariah uttered, a song about God's salvation. Zechariah, after being muted, for nine months, he now announced God's salvation. He declared the motivation behind God's salvation. He, he spoke to us about the effects on us of God's salvation. He told us about the forerunner of God's salvation. And he told us about the results of God's salvation. Friends, at the end of all of this, it would be very pitiful, pitiful, to walk away from here still rejecting this salvation that has power over death that has power over darkness, that has power to bring true peace on earth. This is what the angels have announced, peace on earth. Father, I pray that God would bring that salvation in Jesus Christ to all of us and that we would rejoice in that salvation and we would walk in that salvation. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are merciful and you are faithful to your word. Your mercies and your covenant are powerful. They are abundant. And this morning you have reminded us of your salvation. Father, would you work that salvation in our hearts? For those of us who are followers of Christ, would you, would you build in us gratitude and joy for that salvation? May this Christmas season be not about the things we get physically and materially, May this Christmas season be a season when we, when we deepen our joy and gratitude and praise 
for the salvation you have given us in Jesus Christ. May Zechariah's song become our song. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.